The following is a message from Reverend Ken Melvin of Wellsprings Congregation. So, band, thank you. Every Sunday, you embody and help us to embody the charge of the soul here at Wellsprings. Just soak it in, soak it in. And the song we just did, you know, there's a long list of Wellsprings Band's greatest hits. For me, and I think for some of us, this hit is the hit of all the hits. It's the first one that, for me, you really made entirely your own. And there's other good recorded versions of it out there, but nothing approaches what you all do with it. Thank you. Thank you. And this song also occupies a very key place in in my own heart. Because it reminds me of something that happened in my life, uh, let's see here, 16 years and two weeks ago. Which is that I was ordained on April 28th, 1998, seems like a long time ago, to the Unitarian Universalist Ministry. And at that occasion, some of you may remember this from when we ordained Greg Pelly about a month or so ago to the uh, ordination, ordination into our ministry, our UU ministry, that there's this thing called the charge of the minister. And during the charge of the minister, uh, we're given some life and professional instructions about how we're going to make it through. And the senior minister at All Souls, Unitarian Church of All Souls in Manhattan at the time, was a guy named Reverend Dr. Forrest Church, who knew me quite well. Knew me better than at that point, actually, I probably knew myself. And he knew that um, I liked to brood, (laughs) that um, naturally, my temperament, and also habitually, through practice, I could be somewhat melancholy. I could kind of look down a bit. And so he said these words, the tough stuff in life will take care of itself. Life is tough enough. And so, remember to be surprised by joy. Life is tough enough. Remember to be surprised by joy. Those words always sit inscribed on my heart and have been amplified by what we hear here at Wellspring so often. So what Forest Church was telling me, be ready. Be ready for when joy comes back. Now, I love this song on so many levels, one of which is that it admits what we all know already. Life is tough. Life can be filled with sorrow and suffering and struggle and grief. And for many of us, life is not easy. It assumes that already. And I also love that this song doesn't make a demand or a command of joy. Here, come back. Right now, Joy, I want you on my terms. Well, this song is all about opening the heart, preparing the way, maintaining that orientation of being ready for when joy returns to us. This song is all about willingness and receptivity for when joy returns to life.
It echoes one of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings. We call gardens of abundance and joy. Which we say that we affirm, we believe that each of us has the potential for new life within each of us. And we believe that this potential should be celebrated, cultivated, nurtured, and shared. Like a garden who strives to create the right conditions for the garden to flourish, we strive to create the right conditions for spiritual growth. What we say in that is we can't make the garden grow. All we can do, the best we can do, and it really is something, is to set the right conditions, have the right practices, so that we are cultivating the health, the wholeness that is inside each and every one of us, and that shows forth in new life and joy coming back. This is about preparing the ground of our hearts. This is about readying ourselves so that when joy comes back, we don't just let it pass by unrecognized. Now, how to do this is a challenge for many of us. How to do it is about getting in touch with some of those words I just mentioned starts with getting in touch with abundance. And I'm not talking prosperity gospel nonsense here. I'm not talking about God wants you to have a bigger car. God wants you to beat someone out for that promotion. God wants you to have all the material wealth in the world. That's ego writ large in the sky that some of us then call God. So the abundance that I'm talking about is not about amount. And I'm not talking about a lot in a quantitative or objective sense. I'm talking about the kind of abundance that comes about in our lives when we get in touch with what's actually working. Even if we don't consider a lot to be working, we get in touch with what is actually working right here and right now. And the reason I think this core belief is so important and getting in touch with abundance is so important is that many of us, in the aggregate, all of humanity, although some of us might tend to the sunny side of the street and some of us might tend, like myself, to the brooding side of the street, in addition to being recovering many other things, I am certainly a recovering brooder as well, too. We have this tendency, just from being alive, to focus on problems, to look for what is going wrong. Someone once told me uh, that we all have the tendency to be Eeyores. Looking at what is going awry. And yes, this song presupposes that joy is sometimes absolutely absent from our lives. And if all we focus on are the problems, then that's all we will see. And by the way, this is borne out by uh, a study that's called uh, a study of economics called behavioral economics. It takes a look at the psychology behind our motivations with buying, with selling, with choosing, all these kinds of things. And uh, I think I read this on like a New York uh, Times op-ed piece or one of their blog posts, uh, Freakonomics or something like that. And what they talk about is that the, the feeling, the feeling of losing something is for almost all of us stronger than the strength of feeling that we're gaining something. <laughs> to me, this makes total sense. When you look at you know, how we evolved over millions of years, when our ancestors were dealing with scarcity upon scarcity upon scarcity. Not that many of us don't want beneficial things. It's just sometimes we can get real locked into that fear of losing, and that fear of losing can make it so that we concentrate so much of our efforts on just putting out fires and just focusing on problems. For me, this uh, social science research actually allows me a much 
a greater degree of ease with my own clinging, <laughs> tightening heart and hands. Because I just say, well, this evolved over millions of years. This is not my responsibility. <laughs> this is just a gift from evolution that I don't have to trust. Because once we understand, once we understand that the human mind can tend that way, then we can open up space in the other direction. We can have a willingness to not just focus on all the problems that may be objectively right here in our lives. And we might change and overcome some of our habits, especially if we have a tendency to brood or ruminate and focus on just what is going wrong. Now, this opens up for me one of my favorite Jesus teachings. Jesus, who in this scene is preaching to people who know real, terrible deprivation, people who know material scarcity, people who know want. And very poetically, Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. Now, I'm paraphrasing right now. It goes on to say, well, you know, if your heavenly father takes care of them, you know, why are you so torqued out about this? Why are you having so much difficulty in focusing on these problems? And by the way, Heavenly Father, that's, that's not my chosen language for uh, my experience of God. I'm what they call a panentheist, and this is not a theological discourse, but a panentheist simply means this, that an aspect of God who's not a person or a being, the way the Quakers talk about it, is inner light. It's a part of you and a part of me and holds all of our lives together. A part of each that connects us to the whole. So yeah, Jesus might have had different language, different metaphors, different imagery about how he and his people experience God. But the core part of this teaching, wow, I agree with 100%, more than 100%. Because he's asking them, notice what actually might be working. <laughs> we all have this tendency to focus on what's just fallen apart. But notice clearly right now what's working. Because then Jesus leads into a really pointed question that I have had to look myself in, a, in the mirror many times during my life. Can any of us, can any of you, can I, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of our lives? It's a good deal of research, by the way, that worrying will take away hours from our lives. And if you want to understand what the word worry means, now this may be triggering for some of you, so don't do it if, uh, if this feels unsafe. I mean this. But if you want to understand what the word worry means, put your hands together like this and bring them back very slowly towards your throat and, well, not too hard, squeeze. <laughs> That's what the word worry means. It means to choke it means to strangle. And when we're beset by worries of all the problems that we have, we are literally choking the life out of the heart, out of the soul, out of existence. We can't add hours to our lives. Certainly not quantitatively. Certainly qualitatively, we're taking something away from ourselves by just focusing and worrying about all the problems. I, there was a time in my life in which absolutely I considered worry to be a sign of depth. <laughs> I don't believe that anymore. There's a time in my life in which I would have thought that only idiots didn't worry. Alfred E. Newman, Mad Magazine, what? Me? Worry? See, the error that I had done is I confused worrying 
with caring. Worrying closes life out. Caring opens life up. Huge difference. And so the basic practice here, and I want you to think about this for just a moment right now. How many things had to go right just this morning alone for you to get here? Seriously, how many things had to go right? The coffee had to be strong, or the alarm clock had to go off, and we didn't have deluging rain, and 113 wasn't flooded out, and your street wasn't cascaded over in a Noah-like flood. You woke up today, and somehow you found your way here. A whole bunch of things had to go right for that to happen. And let's take it even beyond that. Your parents had to meet, even if they were the most imperfect parents in the world. They had to meet... Yes, I know. the second time they did it at 9.30, one of the kids patted their parents on the shoulder. <laughs> oh, there's forgiveness in focusing on what's going right, isn't there? And then their parents had to meet, and then their parents had to meet, and then their parents had to meet. There's like an infinite regress of things that went right just for you to be sitting here and for me to be standing here today. It's amazing if we really open up that space to think about, my God, there's stuff going right all the time. It doesn't cancel out the stuff that's going wrong, but right now there's so much stuff going right. When we do that, we open ourselves to a natural, not a forced, but a natural experience of gratitude, of being grateful for what's really here. And this was one of my teachers in gratitude this past week. This is a guy named Kevin Durant, who is a brilliant basketball player for the Oklahoma Thunder. And he won the most coveted award for an individual, which is the MVP, the most valuable player. And he proceeded to give upon receipt of this award. Normally you make a speech and they thank people by rote. He gave a 27-minute speech that has to rank up there with one of the most emotionally intelligent oratories that I have ever heard. 27 minutes of revealing that right behind, right underneath what buffets, what supports an individual award is a whole network of relationships. None of us succeeds or fails on our own. I mean, he thanked individually in really specific ways, in really funny ways, in ways that produced tears, each individual teammate. Each individual one thanking them for making him who he is. So much gratitude, so much EQ. And then, especially on this Mother's Day, wow, was this well-timed, he turned to his mom. And this is where I became a total freaking puddle. <laughs> he said these words, Dear Mom, we weren't supposed to be here. And by the way, he says that several times during this amazing speech that he gave. We weren't supposed to be here. He grew up black and African-American. You got a sense what lies just below the surface of what he spoke about, which is a lot of gratitude, was a tremendous amount of struggle, perhaps even some bigotry, some resistance to them being there, that they were not wanted. We weren't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street, put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrificed for us. You're the real MVP. This is the discipline of gratitude and how it can really change us and connect us and help us remember, as Kevin Durant knew a lot when he was growing up, that things don't work very often, but also how often things do. So yes, things fall apart, 
It's entropy. It's the nature of life. But maybe we can create just a little bit of space, too, to recognize, to get involved with that basic practice. Yeah, things fall apart, but they also fall together, and they come together all the time. From this authentic, relatively basic practice of gratitude, we can open to a second step of preparing the way for joy in our hearts and in our lives. Especially, and this is important, especially if we're not feeling gratitude right now. Especially if we're not feeling joy right now. These things don't have to rest on a feeling. We can open up to what we're grateful for. We can open up to the joy of possibility or the possibility of joy in our lives without having it rest on a feeling that's right here, right now. I recognize that this is a powerful practice that when I'm in one of my most broody kind of moods is to hold a vision in my heart of what joy comes back really looks like. Not to cling to it, but just to hold it open as a possibility, a loving possibility, an openness to joy's return someday and to really envision this. One of the most powerful experiences I ever had of this was about 25 years ago. My grandparents were married for well over 50 years. I think in the final account it turned out to 55 or 60 years that they were together. And my grandfather, for the last 15 or 20 years of his life, lived with Parkinson's disease, which slowly, year by year by year, took away every physical capacity that he had, rendering him almost to the point where he was unable to speak or even communicate in some of those basic ways. And it entered his time in his life, which is unfair. Life is unfair. We know this. I mean, he had worked his entire life, a poor Jewish kid from the Lower East Side of Manhattan, fought in the Second World War, used the GI Bill, all the ways that the society had invested in him, and made a wonderful success out of himself. And then right when he was ready to retire and play golf and tennis and travel with my grandmother, none of that happened because of the Parkinson's. I don't think in the time that my grandparents were together, they spent more than one night apart. Save for this time 25 years ago, when my grandmother had to go into the hospital for a fairly extensive operation and surgery. And it was clear that the kind of help that my grandfather would need would require him to be placed into a nursing care center for two weeks. And I remember the day that my grandmother was discharged from the hospital, and we picked her up, and we drove her over to where my grandfather had been staying. And I just felt this kind of energy radiating off of her. And by this point in her life, she was in her late 70s, so she wasn't getting anywhere fast at this time. But we opened the door of the car, and they had begun to wheel my grandfather out of the nursing home. And my grandmother's steps just picked up a little bit. And she said these words. She said, Oh, Milton, so much love. Milton and Pearl. I mean, what awesome throwback names are those? Milton and Pearl. And they embraced with a love that was so much bigger than anything we would call amorous. They embraced with the love of a lifetime of shared memories. And the tears just completely started flowing down their cheeks. My grandfather was not even able to articulate what it meant to him. But his tears said it. And it was such an image for me that I hold in my heart that joy can come back. 
not always in the ways that we want it, but the possibility of this life is that joy can come back. Hilton and Pearl remind me of this. They remind me of this at this time in my life and this time in many of our lives when we may have been paying attention over the last week or two to just an absolutely heartbreaking and horrendous story. A story that many of you know through this name. Bring back our girls. 250, 300 girls only wanting for themselves an education. Kidnapped by a terrorist group in Nigeria who, it seems, plans to do with them things that the, the mind, I recognize my own resistance in my mind, not even wanting to envision these things because they're so horrendous and so incredibly awful. And yet, many of us are paying attention and trying to do the small things that we can so that we don't just move on to the next thing. A friend of mine on Facebook, and by the way, that's different than a Facebook friend, (laughs) a true friend of mine on Facebook, she posted a link this past week in which was listed all the names of these 250, 300 girls. And almost as a prayer before she went to bed every night, she would say individually each of their names, followed by these words, Bring her home. 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 To rest in that aspiration. Recognize how powerful that is. And at the same time, that that does not assure any happy ending here. Indeed, the likelihood may be that there are not happy endings for most of these girls. But we don't know that yet. And so to hold our hearts open, this is what I found resonating for me after Tracy's prayer at the end of the day, was envisioning what it would be like for hopefully all of those girls, but at least for one of them, to come back home, to be embraced by those who love them, and to embrace those beloved to them again. To keep the heart open even when we don't know the end of the story. This is to set our hearts upon the possibility that joy can return. Set our hearts upon the possibility that joy can return. At the conclusion of a recent mindfulness teacher training I went to, which was really a mindfulness teacher retreat, (laughs) because you can't do the training without doing the practices, and the practices open up the space, and the space is that enlarged and truly loving awareness. At the end of that retreat, the teachers had us do this practice, an eye-gazing meditation, which you've ever done it, is profoundly intimate. You look into another person's eyes and you just maintain that contact of really seeing them. And one of us at one point would ask a question and then we'd have the question asked of us. And the question was this. What does your heart truly yearn for? does your heart truly yearn for? What does your heart truly yearn for? 
the answers I heard myself giving and other people giving were just uh, cracked us right open. The whole room was in tears. My heart yearns to be as wide as the sky. My heart yearns for a love that will heal. My heart yearns for a compassion as deep as my hurts. My heart yearns for a compassion that can be with others when they are in pain. What does your heart yearn for? What does your heart yearn for? What does your heart yearn for? If we stay connected to this and deepen into it, we will find things that we are grateful for that are working right now. And we will also find that we can keep a vision, even through difficult times, even when we're not sure that joy will come back, that we can keep a vision remaining open and readying our hearts for when joy returns. Today, may each of us ready the ground of our hearts so that when joy returns in whatever form it does and on whatever timetable that it will, that when joy returns, we are ready to receive it. Today, may each of us work the rich and fertile territory of the ground of each of our hearts. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, beyond demands or command or compulsion, divine sparks that contains within it the energy of a life that can hold it all. The shadow, the blaze, the hurt and the hope. May we make space. May we be a people making space. For when joy comes back, knowing it may arrive like a thief in the night or may arise on a beautiful, glorious day like today. May we be a people who knows that yes, things can go wrong and they do go wrong. And may we also be a people that knows what's going right right now. From this, may we keep the heart open. May we keep the door open ready for when joy returns. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.